0: In 1972, a song that was written by Don McLean reached number one in the United States, and it reflected his interpretation of events that were triggered by the plane crash that killed Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper on February 3rd, 1959. And uh, throughout this song, Mr. McLean refers to that tragic day as the day that the music died and uh, throughout the centuries. There have been those significant days that uh, have changed or altered the course of human history. And in our ongoing study of Dr. Luke's eyewitness account of the life of Jesus of Nazareth, we come to such a day. In fact, one can add up all the history-altering days throughout time and collectively, they would not even begin to have the impact on time and eternity as the day that Jesus died. And if you've got your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 23. We'll look at verses 44 through 56. And uh, there's four things that were true of this most significant of all days in human history, a day like none other. The question that we're going to ask is, what was it that happened the day that Jesus died? In Luke chapter 23, starting with verse 44, we read these words. And it was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, the sun being obscured, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the multitudes who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance, seeing these things. And behold, a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action. A man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and he laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. And it was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed him after and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. In this passage, there are four truths that will stand out as they relate to the day that Jesus died. The first one is that a, the day Jesus died is a day of great symbolism, and we see this in these first two verses. In verses 44 and 45, we're told that it was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. So from noon till three o'clock in the afternoon, darkness fell across the land. And we know that this was a miracle of God, that this was a message of God, this is was a statement that God was making, because during the Passover time, there was always a full moon, so there was no way that it was an eclipse, there was no other explanation for it from an astronomical standpoint. Uh, The bottom line is is that God was making a statement. And the question for us is, what was the statement that God was making as Jesus hung on the cross from noon till three o'clock in the afternoon, we're told that there was darkness over the whole land? And uh, in order to understand this, we need to recognize that, you know what, everything God does, he does with a purpose. And it's very difficult for us sometimes to understand God's purposes because his ways aren't our ways, his thoughts aren't our thoughts. We're told as high as the earth is above the heavens, so God's thoughts are so much greater than ours. And so we have to get to a point where we can trust and and understand that, you know what, no matter what God is doing, it's okay because he knows what he's doing. See, he's God. And we can rest in that. We can have comfort in that. We can have peace with that. Because I know for so many of us, there are circumstances that happen in our life. And we ask the questions, why? Why is this happening? Or what's going on? And it's as if sometimes we get to the point where we believe, and wrongly so, that, you know what, that life is out of control. And yet we recognize that, you know what, life is never out of control because God is always in control. And so we just need to take a step back and say, okay, while I may not understand this, God, there's a purpose behind everything that you do. And in this particular verse, we learn that there's darkness upon the land from noon to three o'clock. And in order to better understand it, we go back to the word of God. And every time that I'm confused in my own life, I need to go back into God's word and get clarity. The word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. If you're ever confused in life and you're trying to figure out what it is that God's doing, I would highly recommend that you take time to get in the word of God and allow him to speak to you. Allow him to show you what it is that he's doing. And so as we get into the word of God, as always is the case, God does what he does for his purposes. And according to Amos chapter 8 verse 9, we read these words, I will make that time like, and this is verse 10. He says, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Amos 8, chapter chapter 8, verse 9. And he goes on and he says this, I will make that time like morning for an only son." I want you to stop and think. 755 years before this day occurred, God said, and I will bring upon darkness upon the land, and from noon on, it's gonna be dark. And so God continues to speak to us through his word. And we can have confidence in God's word because here it is almost 800 years before the day that Jesus died, and God says, on that day, there will be darkness upon the land, and I will make it dark from noon on. Now anybody familiar with the word of God would have just been jumping up and down with joy knowing that what looked like was, you know, a world gone out of control. How did this happen? You know, not but a few days earlier, we were singing Hosanna in the highest and we were laying our robes down and we had palm branches and we were, you know, we were ushering in the kingdom of God and we were praising God that Jesus the Messiah had arrived and all of a sudden, you know... This, 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 this myriad of events took place and he's arrested and he's tried and he's thrown back and forth between Caiaphas and Herod and they bring him out and they, and you know, and, and, and they put a crown of thorns on him and they scourge him and, and now all of a sudden he, he's crucified and he's hanging on the cross and everybody that was following and looking at him as, as the savior is going, what in the world's going on? The world has gone out of control. And God says, there's nothing out of control. 755 years before this day ever happened I tell you that from noon on there will be darkness upon the land this was a day of great symbolism because it was a day that God helped people to understand who were sensitive to the Word of God that you know what everything is right on on target there's no panic in heaven only plans everything is happening exactly as God had ordained it to happen you know I will make that time like morning For an only son. The darkness represented mourning for an only son. And it also signified the reign of evil that was predicted by Jesus at his arrest. If you remember in, in chapter 22, verse 53, he had told them on the night of his arrest, he said, while I was with you in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. You need to recognize and understand that the day that Jesus died and darkness was upon the land is the day that the devil thought he won. It's the day that the devil was jumping up and down. It's the day that all of his demons were baying with delight. But what they did not understand, it was the day that while the devil bruised Jesus' heel, It was the day that Jesus' death would crush his head forever. Genesis chapter 3. God is in control. He says that day is coming where the devil will think that he won and he bruised the heel of the Savior. But you know what? Jesus' death on the cross crushed his head. And so as we look at this, this darkness signifies that there was mourning that was taking place. But what was, what was actually taking place on those three black hours as Jesus hung on the cross is something that, you know, the, 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 there are times in my life where I read through the Bible and I'm just absolutely just blown away. And I don't have an, I, I don't have an understanding of what it is that God has really done for you and I. But I read this and begin to recognize that, you know, for those three dark hours on the cross, that all of our sins were poured out upon Jesus. And I want you to notice this is to God's plan. In Isaiah chapter 53, verses three through six, the Bible says that Jesus was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. And each one of us has turned his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us to fall upon him. For those three hours on the cross... God caused the iniquity of us all, you and me, and every other human being that ever lived throughout human history, God took our sin and poured it out on Jesus on the cross. And for those three hours in darkness, God was in mourning as to the price that Jesus paid so that you and I would never have to pay that price if we would just trust in him. Peter makes this statement very clear when he says he himself, speaking of Jesus, bore our sins in his body on that tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. It is by his wounds you have been healed. Paul would later write, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might in him become the righteousness of God. You know, I don't understand this, but I know what the Bible teaches. That's what God says that he did. And for those three hours, I want you to stop, and I know that it's so hard, to, you know, illustrations and, and things of that nature are, sometimes fall so short, but at the same time, they're, they're meaningful. And in order for me to understand that I, I, I took, you know, Jesus' life, I took, I took his soul, I took his heart, as if it were a lake that was hemmed in by mountains on all sides. And those mountains represent our sins. And for those three hours, those mountains just caved in like glaciers into that sea and continue to fall one after another. And I want you to stop and think about your own personal life as I did my own. And I thought about every sin that I could think of that consciously I committed. Not those things that I did and I wasn't even sure whether they were right or wrong or things of that nature, but things that I knew throughout the course of my life that I did were wrong. And I want you to stop and think about the fact that every sin that you ever committed, God took and poured upon Jesus for you and for me. Every sin of every human being throughout human history. And I want you to think about how long three hours is. 30 seconds, 60 seconds in an earthquake seems like eternity to those of us who have lived through one or several. I think about some of the medical procedures that I've gone through and how long seconds seem, how long an MRI seems, You know, how long minutes are. And then I think about for three hours in that darkness, God poured out every sin that you and I have ever committed and every sin that you and I have yet to commit and don't even know that we're going to, God poured it out on Jesus. I mean, how can you begin to understand that? How can we begin to comprehend that? But it's not easy, I mean, it's not hard to understand why it was a day of mourning. It's not hard to understand why there was darkness. It's not hard to understand that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. In the darkness of that day, the day that Jesus died, our sins were imputed to Christ and his righteousness has now been imputed to us who have believed. The question is this, have you taken God up on that offer? It doesn't get any better than that. God says, listen, I took all your sins and poured them out on Christ so that if you would just believe and trust in him that you will find forgiveness and be reconciled to God. He paid the price for you and me. And it's just a question of whether we believe that, whether we receive that gift, that sacrifice that he made on our behalf. See, the day that Jesus died was a day of great symbolism and that the darkness that we see was reflective of that of, you know, God mourning for the sins of mankind and mourning for the price that his son paid so that you and I would never have to be held accountable for sin. But it's our choice. It's a free gift offered to God to those who would believe. He doesn't force it on anybody. You know, the second symbolic event is noted in verse 45 where it says, And not only was the sun obscured, but the veil of the temple was torn in two. And so we look at this drapery or this curtain or this veil, and other accounts were told that the curtain or the veil was torn in two from top to bottom, and it occurred at exactly the moment that Jesus died And you ask the question, what is the significance of this event? Well, this curtain was the grandest of 13 curtains that were in the temple. It was woven with expensive yarn and expensive uh, fabric from Babylon and blue and white and red and purple. And it had cherubims that were represented in it. And its function was to block the eyes of people from seeing into the holy of holies. It was a curtain that only, it was it was it was as wide as a man's fist. That's how thick it was, and it was a curtain that only once a year the high priest would go in before God and offer up a blood sacrifice for himself and the sins of all the people. And so, when we look at this, this curtain, when Jesus died, was torn from the top to the bottom. As if a, a, a sword took it and sliced it, or better yet, as if God's hands just took it and ripped it. Now, the tearing, of that, the, the tearing of that curtain or that drapery was symbolic of the judgment that would begin because Jesus had warned that, you know what, judgment was coming upon Jerusalem for those who rejected Jesus as Messiah, and so there was a judgment that was there, just as when Caiaphas, when Jesus appeared before Caiaphas and, and, and claimed to be the fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel, that he was the Messiah, that the, uh, the uh, chief priest took his robe and tore it and said, you know what? There's nothing else that needs to be said. This man has claimed to be God. And so he's blaspheming, and there was judgment that would take place. But more so than judgment it also was symbolic of the fact that we now have access into the very presence of God. The veil was torn so that men would have access to God. And when we look at this, Hebrews, for example, in chapter 10, verses 19 through 22, says that, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Hebrews 6.19 says, We have this hope as the anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. There was no longer a need for a priesthood. Peter writes that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people that have been chosen for God's own possession. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 through 6, we're told that there is now only one mediator between God and man, and that it is the man, Christ Jesus. And so what is being said to us very clearly is this. The day that Jesus died on the cross is the day that God made open access to his very presence by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ. Isn't that awesome? I mean what's so wonderful about that is is that you and I don't need to go to any middleman to have access to God. You and I who have put our faith and trust in Christ, believing that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose again from the dead, have trusted him as our savior. The Bible says that we can now boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence because we have access to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Isn't that great? The most wonderful thing that I wanna encourage all of God's people is to recognize that, you know what, you don't have to go to any other person to have access to God, you could go direct. And I can go direct. And we can take our cares to him. We can take our concerns to him. We can take our praises to him. We can take everything to him because we have access to the very throne room of God because the symbolism of that day was the curtain was ripped from the top to the bottom and there was no need to go through any middleman. Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man and we can go to him. And you know what? And that is the only access to God. He's the only access to God. There's no other way to God. That's why I said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes under the Father but through me. He is our access. See, the day that Jesus died was also a day of divine satisfaction. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 53, I want you to recognize and understand that, you know what? That God was well-pleased in what Jesus accomplished on the cross, because this has been always, through time and eternity, God's plan to reconcile man to himself. In Isaiah chapter 53, down at verse 10, it says, but the Lord was pleased, satisfied to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Notice that. God was well pleased. That Jesus went willingly and obediently and voluntarily to the cross because that has always been God's only way to reconcile man to God. See, now I realize that, you know, there are a whole bunch of folks who want us to believe a whole bunch of different things. But you need to recognize and understand this. The Bible is very clear. There is no other way that you can be right with God other than believing and trusting that God poured out your sins upon Jesus. That's it. And if God is God, and he's the ultimate authority, and he says that's the only way, there's nobody else to appeal to. You can't say, well, you know what, I don't like that way. I like, I'll do good works. I'll do that thing. I'll try to be better than my neighbor. I'll try to be better than some people in my family. I'll try, you know, let me do that. Let me, let me have that approach to heaven. But, but see, what we don't understand sometimes is this. It's not open for negotiation. He's the ultimate authority. You can't appeal it. There's no other court to turn to. There's no appellate court. There's no federal court to overturn a local court. There's no, you know, that's it. This is God's way for you to be right with God and either you believe what God says or you don't. If you believe what he says, you trust that Jesus died for your sins. If you don't believe that he says, then you know what? You're on your own. And you know what? All I can tell you is this. You're wrong. You're wrong. I can't even say to you, I hope you're right because I know you're wrong. And the reason I know you're wrong is because God's word is reliable and trustworthy. This isn't my opinion. This isn't the opinion of our church. This isn't the statement of our faith or our doctrine. This is what God's word says is the only way that you and I can be right with God. And so either the Bible is wrong totally or the Bible is right in its totality. And if it's right, this is it. So take it or leave it, it's the only plan. And you'll notice that the day that Jesus died was a day of divine satisfaction as we go back to Luke chapter 23. Because in it we see the commitment of Jesus to his father. Notice this in verse 46. Jesus crying out with a loud voice, and he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This was a quote from Psalm 31, verse 5. This was a psalm that every Jewish mother and dad taught their children. And basically, it was a bedtime prayer that said, You know what? Into your hands, God, I commit, your, commit my spirit. This was our version of, Now I lay me down to sleep. You know that one? Now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Well, this was, you know, the Jewish version of that prayer. And that is, into your hands I commit my spirit. But Jesus added something very personal, as we saw all throughout his earthly life, and that is he added the word Abba, or Father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And what he is saying is, is that, you know what, it's okay, because I know that you're in total control of everything. You know, I was reading through that, and I just got so blessed by that, because, you know, as I continue to fight this cancer battle and all that goes along with it, there is such a peace that comes with knowing, you know, as Jesus said, you know what, Father, into, you know, your hands, I commit my spirit. See, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, We know from the word of God when we who trusted in Christ are absent from our body, will be present with the Lord. And so we can have a peace about whatever our circumstances are, even if it's the circumstances that lead up to our very departure from this life to the next, that we can have this total commitment to God and say, you know what, Lord, I, I can entrust into your hands my very soul. And you know, now I lay me down to sleep. And I pray the Lord my soul to keep it. If I should die before I wake, Lord, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And I only have to pray the Lord my soul to take because I know his word promises that he will. And so every time my wife starts feeling my face in the middle of the night (laughs) and starts doing this routine, you know, we're just comforted by the fact that if I'm not there anymore, we know where I'll be. And you know what? And what a great, just, just what a great comfort that is for all of us to recognize who have trusted in Christ that we can commit our spirit our soul to our heavenly father you know another interesting thing is is that notice it says that Jesus cried out father into the, your your hands i commit my spirit but we also know from Matthew 27:50 and Mark 15:37 that Jesus cried out with a loud voice notice this in verse 6 46 he cried out with a loud voice and I'll guarantee you that everybody at the site of the crucifixion was shocked by him crying out in a loud voice because no one being crucified had a loud voice in which to shout out. But he also shouted out one word in the original Aramaic and that was finished or in our English we've got it is finished. It is complete. It is done. What I came to do, I accomplished. The son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. For even the son of man did not come to serve, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The day that Jesus died, he yelled out in a loud voice, finished. And it's a present perfect tense meaning this. It is finished today and forever. It is done. There is nothing to be added to it. It is finished. It is complete. It is everything that God said that I would accomplish, I have accomplished. And with a cry of victory and strength that no other crucifixion victim ever had, he yelled out and scared everybody around him, done, it is done. Done. I did what I came to do, I accomplished the work of the Father, I have reconciled God to man through the shedding of my blood, the brokenness of my body, it is done. And ladies and gentlemen, it is still done. There is nothing that you can do to add to it. And one of the greatest heresies of our time is that somehow or another, what Jesus did on the cross wasn't enough. And we start to go, Jesus plus, Jesus plus. Jesus plus what? Jesus plus baptism? No, the thief on the cross never was baptized and he was with Jesus that day in paradise. Jesus plus what? Good works, giving money, doing work for the poor, reading your Bible, whatever. All those things are well and good and they're all part of growing in our faith. But our salvation rests solely on him. Jesus plus Nothing. Jesus only it is all about him period and that is what he yelled out from the cross and that is why the apostle Paul said I am not ashamed of the gospel For it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek to all who believe because only the gospel of Jesus Christ can save man from the judgment or the wrath of God for sin. Your sin, my sin, the sins of this world were poured out on Jesus and either you accept that gift that he has offered to you or you don't but there's nothing you can do to add to or subtract from it, period. It's all about Jesus, It was a day of divine satisfaction because the work of God was complete in Christ. It was also a day of personal salvation. Notice verse 47. Now, when the centurion saw what happened, he began praising God saying, certainly this man was innocent. I don't think we realize what a tremendous statement this is. Here was a Roman soldier responsible for 100 other Roman soldiers, the centurion responsible for 100. He was at the foot of the cross of Jesus. And throughout the course of the day, he saw Jesus in a way that he had never seen before. He heard him say things like, Father, forgive them, speaking of the soldiers, for they don't even know what they're doing. He heard him offer to the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. He saw the earthquake, felt the earthquake, and he saw the darkness that encompassed the land for those three hours. He probably moved closer to the cross to make sure nothing funny was going on and that those three guys were still there because that was his responsibility. And if it was pitch black, he's wondering if somebody came, try to take him down. This man's life was transformed by the actions and the words that he saw take place that day. And at the end of all of it, you know what he said? Surely this man was innocent. This man, this centurion soldier, his life was changed by how Jesus died. And I want you to also notice this. It says, and Jesus, in verse 46, breathed his last. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about this, but you and I do not have the power to give up our life outside of putting a gun to our head or something else. I want you, as you sit there, to stop and think about this. Okay, God, I've lived enough Into your hands I commit my spirit. Here I come. Try that. I mean, think about that. Try that for a second. I mean, there are days where I, you know, recently where I haven't felt real good and I'd be like, here I come. Take me now. I'm ready to go. What do I, and and, you know, and, and I say this jokingly with humor But at the same time, there's a very significant statement that's made. Several years ago, I had the um, privilege of sitting at the the bedside of a good friend of ours who was dying of cancer. And she looked at me and she said, Chuck, how will I know when I'm about to die? And uh, I don't don't know. I can't can't tell you. I have no idea. But you you know, God, God will let you know. She had put her faith and trust in Christ. She had peace with God. She was ready for him to take her home. But as she laid in her bed, because the reason I got called is they said, she's not going to live through the day. And so we went over and, you know, spent time together. She said, well, how will I know? You know, six weeks later, she was still asking the same question. You know, how will I know? Well, the only thing I know from the word of God is that you know that, that day we depart from this life to the next, we'll know and it won't be a surprise to us. What leads up to it, I don't have a clue. When Linda was talking to one of my surgeons this week, she said, well, what are things that are symptoms or things that we should look for? And he knew what she was talking about and I started to joke about how she keeps touching me in the middle of the night, you know, and he kind of got choked up about it. And he's like, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't really, you know, I can't really... I can't tell you. I don't know. And so what's wonderful about it is, from this, is that we recognize that, you know what? Only God has the power to take life. Only God can give us life, and only God can take our life. You can sit there all day long and say, okay, Lord, I've had enough, call me home, but you can't give up your spirit Jesus did. And the centurion saw that because he had been at crucifixions many times. And I'm sure there have been many people on the cross who said, You know what? I want to die and I want to die now. And they lived for hours and days. I want to die now. Jesus said, It's finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And he gave up his spirit to the Father. Jesus, I mean, think about this. Talk about total control of everything. Jesus gave up his spirit when he knew he had accomplished the work that God sent him to accomplish, and it was over. It was done. It was finished. We can't do that. But we can trust in him to take our life, our soul, our spirit because it's appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. But we can trust him. See, God did through Jesus' death what his life could not do and that was God broke the hard heart of this centurion soldier through the death of Jesus Christ. And this man had nothing to do with Jesus while he was alive. So now, you want to get excited about something? Think about this. As I was reading through this and studying this, I, I, you know, my prayer to God was this. God, I want you to do through my death, and I don't know when that's going to be, and I just explained that to you. That's all in God's hands. But I want you to do through my death what you haven't been able to accomplish through my life. And I want you to reach people that have had no interest in spiritual things, whether through our life or whether through our death. May God be glorified and may his kingdom increase. Is that the best? That's that's a priceless commercial. You know, because there are people in our lives that have no interest in spiritual things until they hear you're dying and then they want to talk to you. And that's all right. And like I told the guys on the angels, I blame them said, man for years I've been trying to teach you these truths and you haven't been interested in hearing anything I had to say. Now all of a sudden, you know, I got to get sick and I got to be dying from cancer for you to want to listen to anything I had to say. And I'm thinking that maybe some of you are responsible too. <laughs> but but I don't know that for sure, so I don't want to I don't want to lay that guilt trip on you. But you know, but the bottom line is this, whether through our life or whether through our death, God use us for your glory isn't that the best and lastly it was a day of deep sorrow you know it was a day of deep sorrow and that you know and and that's understandable as we look at this you know the the, the sorrow that was there the understanding that you know bottom line is is that there, there were so many things that were going on and the reaction first and foremost of the crowd notice, there's in verse 48 it says that the multitude of people who came to watch the spectacle you know, they didn't have TV then, so it was kind of like, hey, what are you going to do today? I don't know, let's go watch a crucifixion. You know, pretty weird, but you know, it's no different than watching WWF wrestling or something. So, <laughs> but, but it was like, okay. And, 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 and this, this multitude of people went to watch this, and they saw everything the centurion saw, and you know what? And they walked away, and the, and the word of God says, and they beat their chests or their breasts, which was their form of mourning, they were convicted about everything that they saw. They were convicted about their part in it because they were the ones shouting out, crucify him. They're the ones that said, you know what? Stick him on the cross. And as they walked away, they were convicted. They were cut to the quick. And the wonderful thing about that is, is that later when Peter would preach at Pentecost, the the, the, the word of God or the seeds of the, of the gospel had already been sown. And they were already convicted about their part in putting Jesus to to death on the cross. And the Bible says that at that time, at Pentecost, they said, what must we do to be saved from the wrath or the judgment of God because we killed God's son? And seeing that's where every one of us need to be. What must I do to be saved from the wrath or judgment of God because it was my sins that killed Jesus? And you know what he said? Repent, turn from sin, and turn to God and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. See, the reaction of the crowd was they were guilty and convicted The response of the women also indicates that there was a tremendous sorrow that was there in verse 49. And all of his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance seeing all these things. There was a tremendous amount of sorrow and mourning. And you know what? And sorrow and mourning always precede salvation. You know, you can't come to God and say, oh, okay, great, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Sounds like a good deal. Where can I sign up? What? What? you need to understand that you put them on the cross. You need to understand it was your lies and your immorality and your greed and your gossiping and your, your, your coveting and, and, you know, and your hatred and your anger. You know, you can't get off the hook, and I can't get off the hook. And until we recognize, you know what? It was my sin that put Jesus on the cross. It was my sin that God poured out upon him in those three hours of darkness. Until you take responsibility for it being your sin that put Jesus on the cross, you could never come to be reconciled with God because the word says to repent, have a change of heart and mind about your own goodness or whatever else. You think it is about yourself. None of us are righteous. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us have turned from God. And until we recognize that, we can't be saved from the wrath of God. But once we do, a broken and contrite heart, God will never despise. There was a day of great sorrow. This should be a day of great sorrow for you and I to finally fully comprehend that it was our sins that put Jesus on the cross. Now notice the request as we wrap this up of Joseph of Arimathea. We're told that Joseph was a good man, righteous man. He hadn't consented to their plans and their action, which is kind of strange because other gospel accounts say that, you know, the entire council was in hearty approval. So either Joseph wasn't in town when they took the vote or he wasn't asked to be a part of it, but he didn't consent to it. And that's one of those contradictions that people look at and go, oh, well, you know what? He was on the council and the council all agreed. Well, you know what? The council that was there that voted agreed, but Joseph wasn't a part of it and neither was Nicodemus. And so this man consented, it says, didn't consent to their plans. He he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now we're told in Mark chapter 15, 42 through 45, that it wasn't until he gathered up his courage that he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And the reason for it was very simple. Until this moment in time, Joseph was like so many of us, A secret service believer. An undercover Christian. Lord, I'm for you, but I'm not letting anybody else know because there's going to be some heat put on me if people find out. So it was kind of like, but there's a point in every one of our lives where we have to take a public stand for the Lord. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart God raised him from the dead you shall be saved. With the heart, man believes in results in righteousness, but with his mouth, he confesses unto salvation. Listen, folks, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your savior, the Bible says that God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but one of power and love and discipline, that there is a point where you must proclaim him in the excellencies of him who have called us from darkness to light, that we are to be his witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the outermost parts of the world. You cannot come to faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You cannot be born again. You cannot have the spirit of God living within you and deny Jesus publicly before men. The Bible says that if you deny him before men, that Jesus will deny you before his father. And so it becomes indicative of whether we're truly born again as to how vocal we are about our faith and trust in Christ. And there are some of you from a generation who have been wrongly taught that, you know what, that's a personal thing that you don't share with anybody. And I would ask you the question, who taught you that? The Bible didn't teach you that because the word of God says we are to proclaim before men that Jesus is alive. We're to proclaim before men that it is God's will that men everywhere repent and turn from sin and turn to Christ. We are to be his witnesses of this great transformation that has taken place in our life before those around us who don't know Jesus. And where in the world have you bought into the lie that somehow this is something personal between you and God? It is not. It is a public transaction that is to be testified before men. When was the last time you told anybody about Jesus? That really is the litmus test of our faith. You know, Joseph and Nicodemus finally come out in public and Joseph gathers up the courage to go to Pilate and says, I want his body. Joseph says things about Jesus after his death that he should have said about Jesus while he was alive. No, better late than never, but I read somewhere not long ago this. It is one of the tragedies of life that we place on people's graves the flowers that we should have given them when they were alive. And I read that and I said, you know what? That is so true. That is so true. And so as a result, I was convicted about the fact that I need to say to you and all of you who have Fasted, who have prayed, who have sent us emails and sent us cards and sent us meals and have expressed your love for us and that you're sending the flowers now while we can still enjoy it, then afterwards, where frankly, if you wait till after I'm in heaven, I won't care. <laughs> I, I read the book, I'm going to be in the presence of the Lord. And it's like, I don't care what you send to my wife after that or whatever the timing is. It's like, it won't matter to me. I appreciate today that I can say thank you to you and praise God for your prayers. And listen, folks. God knew about my cancer before I did, before the doctors did, and before we shared it all with you. Now, we realize that God also says that we're to come to him in prayer. So, it's not like God hasn't heard about my cancer. And I realize that every time you pray on our behalf, he hears more about it. (laughs) But I just want to let you know, he already knows all about it. I thank you for it, but I encourage you to keep your eyes on Jesus. Because, you know what? There's no panic in heaven, only plans. And what I learned from Joseph I want to share with you, and that is this. Live lives of no regrets. If God convicts you to do something today, do it. If God convicts you to pick up the phone to call somebody, call them. If God says, hey, John, I want you to write this person a note of encouragement, write it to them. Because... You know, there's no sense putting flowers on the grave of a person who's in heaven when you can bless them while they're still here. And so we need to bless one another while we're all still here. And that's what I learned from Joseph. Better late than never, yes. But you know what? You could have blessed Jesus even though his voice wouldn't have made a difference if he stood up in the middle of the Sanhedrin and said, you know what? I'll have nothing to do with this. This is wrong god 's plan was still going to happen the way that it did, but Joseph could have stood up publicly and said "I'll have nothing to do with that, and he could have blessed our Lord in the process so it's you know it's it's, it's exciting to know that god's in control of everything, but it also is exciting to know that you know what god's teaching us all lessons, and the lesson is this: do what God is is pushing you to do and it's the best it is you know what the the best thing about everything that i'm going through and i mean this sincerely it's like living through your memorial service and and you can have some feedback you know i can be a part of it when people call it's wonderful to be able to catch up with them and say you know what praise god that god's still working in your life when I get a note and I read it, it's such a blessing to see what God is doing in your life. I mean, it's, it's, it's the best. And so, anyway, that all, well, that, that all said, we need to recognize and understand that, you know what, we just need to do what God calls us to do um, and have a life of no regrets. The last thing is we're told that Joseph uh, removes the body of Jesus and uh, lays him in the tomb. And as the uh, saying goes, it's Friday... But Sundays are coming, and so I want to encourage you to invite friends, neighbors, co-workers uh, Friday to this Good Friday service, where we'll talk about what, what what Jesus accomplished on the day of His death. Next Sunday, two services. Don't forget at eight and at ten fifteen. And uh, you know what? And, and and it only gets better. In closing, a small boy was turning the pages of a book of religious art. And when he came to a picture of the crucifixion, he looked at it for a long time with a sad look on his face and he finally said this, if God had been there, he wouldn't have let that happen. You know, and that's how the crucifixion seems until we understand what it really means that we learn that God was there on the cross we learned that it was His will. We learned that because of the cross, grace flashed in the lives of Simon of Cyrena, the daughters of Jerusalem, the crucifying soldiers, the thief on the cross, the centurion, that grace has flashed across the lives of you and I who have come to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us, We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what happened on the day that Jesus died. The question is this, have you been reconciled If not, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the impact that was made the day that Jesus died. God, we pray that we understand that our sins, my sin, was poured out on Jesus on the cross. And that if we would just believe in him, we would not perish but have everlasting life. God, we thank you that we will not be held accountable. We will not be held to your judgment or your wrath to those of us who have trusted that Christ did indeed die for my sins. He rose from the dead. He lives victoriously today and is seated at the right hand of the Father. God, we thank you that you did it all and that we are here to preach Christ and him crucified. We thank you for entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. May we boldly go into this world preaching and proclaiming that it is your will that men everywhere repent and be reconciled to God through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And it's in his wonderful name we pray. Amen.